Today we begin a very important teaching series that I want us to really take seriously. Um, the material that we're uh, going to talk about and we're going to look at is going to be heavy and it's going to be deep at times, um, at ho- probably a lot of the time. Um, you're going to be tempted to check out, um, trust me, um, more so than usual, um, because as I have prepared for these messages, um, every time I sit down, something comes up. I've got to go do something. And it's like, Satan, would you leave me alone for just like five minutes so that I can tear you apart? Um, But, so you're going to be distracted. Um, If you get distracted and you space out at some point, be sure to see Jim Claghorn, who will be happy to give you a CD of the message, or you can go to the church's website and download the messages there. So I encourage you to make sure that you are with me through this. Uh, My prayer is that each of us will... Uh, understand the weight of really what we're going to be talking about in these next five weeks. Uh, I'm serious when I say this is probably the most important teaching series that that I have done Um, just because of the fact that so many people don't understand it. And it's not taught about a lot because, quite frankly, we don't want to know about it. Uh, We'd rather not hear about it and put it to the side. So I want to start out with making sure that we get in the right frame of mind. Anytime you look at evidence, it's important to have this right frame of mind so that we don't allow our own personal bias to affect um, our determinations or to sway our determinations as we look at evidence. So I want us to get in the right frame of mind. And to do that, I want to ask you a few questions. Do you want to believe in a God who punishes non-Christ followers, who magnifies his mercy by blessing those who follow him forever? Now listen to the question. Do you want to believe in a God who punishes people who do not follow him? In other words, do you want to believe in a God who will send someone to hell because they didn't believe in him? Be honest with yourself. If I'm honest with you, I don't want to believe in a God like that. At the gut level of when I think about it, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I have family and I have friends that have rejected Jesus in their life. And if if I want to just push myself to believe in a God like that, my gut level answer is, No, because I I care for them. I love them. I don't want to see them go to hell. I want to believe that all of us are going to go to heaven. Maybe the wicked people, maybe the really bad people, you know, the people on death row, that's okay. Maybe we'll be okay with that. But not the people who, you know, just didn't want to go to church on Sunday because they thought it was boring. Not those people. But let me ask you the question a different way. Could you? Could you believe in a God who decides to punish people who don't believe in Jesus? Could you? See, there's a difference in those two questions. 
But see, the thing about that is, though, our response to the first one makes us answer the second question with, I can't. I don't want to believe in a God like that, so there's no possible way that I ever could. But what if the decision isn't ours? What if we really don't have a choice in the matter? Could we believe in a God who would punish people who don't follow him? Don't get me wrong. I want everyone to be saved, and I certainly don't want anyone to go to hell. But here's the thing. Despite what we may want to believe, we've got to figure out what God told us to believe in God's word. So despite what we may want, we have to figure out what God told us to believe. So to do that today, our main question that we're going to focus on is the question, does everyone go to heaven? Does everyone go to heaven? To be able to answer the question, does everyone go to heaven, we also have to simultaneously ask the question, does hell exist? Does hell exist? On the paper I handed out to you guys with the perspectives of the, on the afterlife, I gave you six basic definitions, very, very basic definitions. Uh, for today, we're actually going to be dealing with just two of them. Um, the universalist perspective and this perspective that, si that sides with there being both a heaven and a hell. So two different, very different perspectives. The universalist does not believe in hell. What they believe is that all people will go to heaven. But there are two extremes of the universalist claim. The first claim of the universalist, one extreme, says that all roads lead to God. So, so it doesn't matter what religion that you believe in, and for some it doesn't even matter if you follow a religion, because all roads lead to God. Eventually, you will end up at that point where God is in your life. But then the other extreme of the universalist claim believes that because Jesus' death on the cross, expressing God's ultimate love for us, because of that death on the cross, we have the right to go to heaven and that everyone will go to heaven, that there is no hell. So with a basic understanding of universalism, let's look at some of the scripture texts that a universalist will use to make their claim that all people go to heaven, there is no hell. Their first claim that they have is that every knee will bow and they take this from Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when they look at these, especially these last two verses, verse 10 and 11, 
And they take out there that every knee should bow and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they look at that and they say, well, if everyone is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that that means they're going to accept him in their life. And so if they're going to accept him in his life, we're all going to be in heaven. Therefore, there's no hell. And Paul tells us in Philippians 1.28 that those who oppose the gospel will face destruction and those who embrace it will be saved. You see, they, they don't look at all of the scriptures. One of the things about the universalist is that they don't look at all of the text. They pick and choose the ones that they want to pull out that support their argument. In Philippians 3, 18 and 20, Paul contrasts the destinies of believers and unbelievers. He says, For as, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have two different destinies here, one of destruction and one of life. The fact of the matter is that every knee will bow. But not to the degree and the perspective that a universalist takes. You see, every knee will bow in the sense that it doesn't matter if you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. Because when you get to hell, you will therefore acknowledge God was who he said he was. And that Christ is exalted. That he is God. We'll acknowledge it by our very presence of not being with him. We will bow down to him because of who he is. It doesn't matter if we're going to heaven or to hell. We will therefore acknowledge who he is. As I read earlier in the scripture reading, Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me, Jesus is speaking these words. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. We may look at this and we may say, well, Pastor Dustin, I, I know people that were good people that never said anything bad about God. They, they never like put down God. They never said God was a waste of time. And, you know, they probably would have been like Oprah and agreed with whoever was in the room. And, you know, they, they believed that way. But see, here's the thing. You don't have to verbally speak the words to dishonor God with your life. The way that you choose to live in action, in word, 
in lifestyle, in the decisions that you make. All of those things will either proclaim who God is in your life or they will dishonor God. So everything about us, just not the words. You don't have to come to church and proclaim him to be a person who follows him and proclaims who he is. But you also don't have to come to church and in front of everyone denounce him before you do it with your life. The second claim, that all will be made alive. And their text for this one is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. It says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. As for Adam, the fall, sin entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned. And so because of Adam, just as we sin and we die because of that sin, because Christ has come into the world and and died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to the Father, we'll be made alive. But see, the universalist stops right there. They don't read verse 23 that says, but each... But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Those who belong to him. Those who have chosen with their life to follow him. For something to belong to me, I have to have possession of it. Otherwise, I can't claim it. How can Jesus claim us if he doesn't know us? How can he claim to know who we are if he doesn't know who we are? If we've never had a relationship with him? The third claim. God wants all people to be saved. Some of you already are like, well, yeah, duh. But listen to me. They use 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. It says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, let me ask you this. Does God not want all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? The truth being Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, God wants all people to be saved. But if we look at that word wants, and we actually look at what it means, it can also be translated a different way. It can be translated as desires or wishes. When you desire something, does it mean that it will always happen? That no matter what, you will get what you want? No. 
just because I want a 2014 truck does not mean it because I'm driving a 2007 truck. Because there's a difference in desire and wish. It comes back to a matter of free will. See, God wants all people to be saved. But he also gave us the free will to make that choice of whether we want Christ in our life or not. And with our lives, we will make that choice. I saved the, ba- the best claim for last. This is my favorite one. Second chances. There's a vital ingredient to universalism. And I want us to wrestle with this one because it is key to the claims of the universalist. You see, the all, almost all universalists agree upon this, that after a person dies, there will be another chance. That we'll each have another chance, really an endless string of chances to choose Jesus in our life. Okay, and get out your Bibles because I want you to turn to this one. Um, It won't take you very long to get to it. Um, Go ahead and turn to it for me. Oh, sorry. I didn't give you a passage. That's because there isn't any. There's zero biblical support that says when we die, we will get another chance. Because the fact of the matter is, God gave you a lifetime on earth of opportunities to choose him. Why would he give us another chance after we die? Because more than likely when we die, we're going to figure out where we're going. And I can tell you if I'm going to hell, of course I'm going to choose Jesus. So you're saying that I get to live however I want and face no punishment for my sins and the life that I have chosen, but I'll just wait. See, for as long as I've known my brother, that's his take on it. Now, he doesn't know, like, I'm a universalist. He has no clue. But he believes that I can live however I want, and right before I die, I'll accept Jesus into my life. So I ask him, so if I come to your house tonight and I shoot you, you think I'm going to give you a chance to pray? No, probably not. So what happens then? I don't know. The fact is we don't know when we're going to die. And our life will be the testimony of what we've chosen.
after looking at the Bible evidence, just these four short pieces of evidence, you might ask yourself like I have done, why does a universalist believe the way they do? Universalists don't like the idea of people going to hell. So they create scenarios that deny the truth and say that the Bible does not clearly teach universalism. Duh. That's pretty evident. So the strength of their claim is it's not all in there. So there's nothing to say that it's not possible. But if we believe that God's word is the inspired word of God, that he gave his word to us to proclaim his love and truth to us, why would he tell us that there's a hell if there's not? A universalist rejects hell based on a sense of compassion for other humans. But their primary rejection is that inflicting eternal punishment is unworthy of God. Because in their minds, that would negate his love. That hell cannot exist because if God sent people to hell that would mean he really doesn't love us. I want to find a universalist that's a parent. I want to have a little talk with him. I would ask him, if your child were to do something wrong and to do something pretty bad, would you punish them? If you would say no, I would really want to know how it's like to live in your house where your children do not know the difference between right and wrong and can do whatever they want so that I can avoid what that scenario would ever look like. If, however, you do discipline your children, does that mean you don't love them? No, not in the slightest. Disciplining a child as a parent is literally an act of love, short of beating them to death. You know, there there is a line where it's no longer love, don't get me wrong. But disciplining a child when they do something wrong or their behavior is bad is a sign of love that you care about this child. Even Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If we discipline our children because we love them, what is the purpose behind the punishment? What is the deeper purpose behind the punishment? There's a behavior or decision that was made that is wrong, and we don't want them to continue to, to make those decisions. As parents, we desire our children to literally repent. 
to turn from a behavior that is wrong or bad. You catching my use of words there. God calls us to repent of our sin. To turn is what repent means. To turn away from what is wrong and choose what is truth and what is right. So as parents, when we punish children, we're literally doing that very thing. We want them to see what is wrong and we want them to turn from it and choose what is right. But it even goes further than that. What happens after your children grow up? They leave the house and they're out on their own. Everything you have been through with your child just doesn't seem to have made a difference. You punish them, but when your child turns around and does it again, you you made the punishment harder. Thinking, if, if I just make it more severe, maybe then they'll get the picture. But no matter how many talks you had, no matter how many counseling sessions you sat through with your child, he's still making bad decisions and going down the wrong path in life. You know that eventually, as a parent, you can just sense that eventually it's going to catch up with them. Their decisions are eventually going to catch up with them and they're going to have to pay for the choices that they've made. Now, as a parent, though, through all of this, do you love your child any less? No, you don't. You still love them despite the decisions that they've made. Because you have a love that cannot be broken no matter what it is, no matter how much pain and sorrow they've caused you. You still have a love for them. So because you love your child, when he gets drunk one night and decides to drive home, and on his way home, he crosses the yellow line, and he runs head into a young couple that were out on their first date together. Your son survives the accident. And according to the law, he is guilty of vehicular manslaughter. On the day of your son's trial, you stand up in front of the judge and you say, I love my son, and because of my love alone, he should not be punished. Despite your plea to the judge and your love for your son, your son is sentenced to 15 years in prison. Now that your son is now in prison, Does that mean you truly didn't love him? Because your child is being punished. Does that mean really the love that you felt wasn't there, was not real? No. But we hurt inside. Because something that's so close to us, that we love so much, that we have put so much of our life into is struggling, is hurting. But we still love them. 
But despite how vast and deep and long our love is for our child, he will pay for the consequences of the life that he's chosen to live. Jesus has given us a free will, which means you and I have the choice to follow Jesus Christ or to pay for the punishment hell. But here's the key. Jesus, God, does not send anyone to hell. He simply honors the decision you made with your life. How many times can I think of hearing a parent tell a story of my child just keeps making the wrong decision? And and now he thinks the right decision is to move out on his own. I know he's not ready. I know he's not ready to get a job. I know he's not ready to, to face the real world alone. Does the parent lock the doors from the outside and keep their child in the house? No, they send them out with love, hopefully with the disclaimer of, I'll be here when you come back. That's what God does to us. He's not going to make you make the right decision. He's going to hold us accountable to the decision we make. But any point we want to come and follow him, he's willing. But he made the truth known to us. He's made the truth known to us. But I want to stop right here, and I want to be really clear right now, because this is a a dangerous topic to talk about as a pastor, and one of the main reasons why pastors don't want to talk about this. So I want to be clear, because I don't want to hear later that someone is going around town saying, Pastor Dustin said, I'm going to hell. Pastor Dustin says that my child, my grandpa, my dad, my, you fill in the blank, went to hell when they died. Because one, I did not say that. Two, I will never say that. Because I do not get to make the decision who gets voted off the island. It's not up to me. I'm glad it's not up to me. Where you spend eternity is up to no one else but you. You cannot make the decision for your kids. 
You cannot make the decision for your grandkids or your great-grandkids or your neighbors or your best friends. You cannot. It's on them to make that decision. However, my job is to teach you, to instruct and guide you, to lead you and to hold you accountable to living as a follower of Christ. And that's the reason I've chosen to talk about hell. Because I want you to know the truth. Because if I stand up here and I just dance around it and avoid the problem, that doesn't mean it goes away. It just means I'm not doing my job. And I don't want you to get up there in front of God on Judgment Day and say, Pastor Dustin never told me about it. Well, I'm telling you this. One, read your Bible. Two, there's a hell. But you may be saying, well... We looked at some of the evidence of, of some of the things that universalists have talked about. We haven't really talked about where it talks about it in the Bible. We'll get there next week. We have four more weeks of this. It was supposed to be only four weeks. But as I got into this, I'm like, there's no way. I told Jeff earlier, I said, I haven't even talked about what Jesus says about hell yet. How can I not talk about what Jesus says about hell? So next week, we're going to talk about what Jesus says about hell. But here's the beauty of this whole thing for you. You can leave here today, and you can say that pastor is crazy. There is no hell, and I'm not changing my life. I'm not changing the way I live. I don't care what he says. You can do all of that because God literally gave you the free will to do it. But I want you to leave here today remembering this. There is a hell. And your refusal to acknowledge that there is a hell does not make it any less real. So you can deny it. You can not acknowledge it. You can dance around it all you want. But that doesn't mean it's not real. Why would God send his son to die with the sole purpose of dying for our sins if there wasn't a place to avoid. Why would he sacrifice himself for us if we were all going to go to heaven anyway? Something to think about.